We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. Aloha and welcome to the Layman's Lounge podcast, a ministry of thelaymanslounge.com, where we exist to bring everyday theology to encourage Christians for everyday life, um, where we try to put ambiguity in her place. I'm Jason Estopanol. I'm a business process analyst and a YWAMer here in Kona, Hawaii. And on the other line is Dr. Julie Canlis. Aloha, Dr. Canlis. Thank you. Aloha. I'm, I'm surrounded by snow, so it seems strange to say aloha, but here we are. That's just fine. Dr. Canlis is liturgical director at Trinity Church in Wenatchee, Washington. <laughs> um, she's a adjunct professor at Whitworth University. Are you still with Regent at all or...? just summer schools from time to time. Okay. And you know what, before I forget, I have to do this massive plug to, she has a 10 part Regent college course called worship as a way of life. Oh my goodness. Okay. Please go and download that. We'll link it in the show, show notes, hitting literally everything. Um, sorry. She, uh, she's con uh, a contributor to Christianity today and author of and a contributor to half dozen books, including, I'm just gonna name a few here. She's a chapter in, quote, in Christ, in Paul, explorations in Paul's theolo theology of union and participation, edi edited by Ken Kevin Van Hooser. And it's like some German, I, I don't even know the name of the publisher. That's why I just said edited by Kevin <laughs> Van So we'll, we'll post that. Um, a glorious chapter in a book called Sanctification, Explorations in Theology and Practice, which is IVB, IVP 2014. And she is the author of Calvin's Ladder, A Spiritual Theology of Ascent and, Accession, and Ascension, Erdman's Publishing 2010, and a 68-page microbook called A Theology of the Ordinary. And Julie, I, I love that you said micro books are like the future of theology ooh, <laughs> they, have ooh. To be. they have to be <laughs> i need i'm i'm waiting for some installments from you what what would be a few that would be in queue to come out from you oh i actually would love to do one on how to read scripture i would love to do one on the sacraments one i'd love to do one on the church calendar and like what crazy Christians around the world, why they actually celebrate holy days and why they do it and why the church devised this plan to help us live out our faith. So those are some of the things I, I love to think and write about. Okay. S someone, if you're wealthy, please send her money so she can do this. <laughs> this needs to happen. All right. So what has, Dr. Candace, what has been the most influential for you to begin valuing a theology of the ordinary? And, and what is meant by ordinary or theology of the yeah, ordinary? Yeah, good question. Um, this book grew out of my returning to the States. So my husband and I uh, left the States for 17 years. And when we came back to America, some things had shifted within us. And there were certain things that we were starting to notice about um, the American church, which we love. Um, my husband's a pastor. I direct worship at our church. So we are, we love the American church. We love the church, the worldwide church. We love the American church. But I also began noticing certain things that I would have never noticed had I not been away for so long. And one of them, it was my daughter from the back of the car as we're driving through our little small town in mid 
uh, Washington State, she said, mom, why do all the advertising signs say the biggest or the best? And I, re I started laughing because I realized, oh yeah, in Scotland, if you ever said anything was the biggest or the best, people would laugh at you because you it's like against the rules to self-promote in Scotland. So she not only noticed that about America, but I started noticing it with book titles, Christian book titles and um, Christian conferences. And I started realizing, wow, there's this kind of American self-promoting fervor and in intensity that is now, I will say, infecting the church, uh, has been for a long time. And that's got to have some pastoral implications. So the more I started thinking about it, the more I started wondering what are the ways in which this is skewing our faith? Because all of our, our, every culture will bring certain parts of the faith um, to light better and other parts of different cultures will, will skew it. Um, and so I started realizing how much this intensity and fervor um, made most, or at least tempted American Christians to be dissatisfied with their ordinary lives and thinking that if they were really to be serious for Jesus, it had to be something bigger or better, more dramatic, higher numbers, bigger parking lot, you know, bigger conference. And, and also if we were at a rough spot in our spiritual lives, we, we would think the only way out of it would be to do, be more devoted. Now, obviously I, I want more devotion, but sometimes that would look a certain way and if it didn't look that way, then there would be depression, discouragement, feeling abandoned by God. Um, so what I wanted to do was lay out for people why maybe that was a bit of an American import into our faith, because I really want freedom for people. And as someone who is raising four kids whose lives, whose my personal life looked very ordinary. And, you know, if I even had a quiet time in the morning, I would have felt very proud of myself, but could I remember it an hour later? No. Um, and so there were, there were certain markers that made me feel sub-spiritual. And I started thinking that's wrong. Um, and that is, that's not the freedom that Christ has called me to. So what do I need to rethink theologically about how to think of my ordinary life? So that's why I wrote my little micro book, as I call it, around the father, son, and spirit and the good news they have for us. Um, so, I'm, so this was birthed out of my own experience and coming home and then having my kids start pointing things out about American culture and me starting to put two and two together. But why I was able to write it was because I had spent, um, I don't know, 30 years in school and I did a lot of schooling on, and the last decade of um, my life was spent doing graduate work, postgraduate work uh, in Scotland, getting a PhD in theology. And so Calvin taught me how to think through all of life in a Trinitarian way. And that's, that was kind of my push off to starting to think, how do I think about ordinary life in a Trinitarian way? And then I started thinking about, um, I really had to come to grips with Jesus's humanity and that, okay, if my ordinary human life is pleasing to God, then I realized I'd been ignoring all of Jesus's ordinary human life. And I realized that I only really thought that Jesus's last three years of his life were the important ones. And I was kind of shoving his first 30 years to the side. Um, and that was, that was wrong. That was setting me up for failure. That was setting me up to not value any of my ordinary life. And it was setting me up to 
think that the only thing that's important about my life is when I'm saving people or when I am a part of something really big and exciting and full of, um, you know, zeal for the Lord. And so I started wondering and reading a lot of theologians on Jesus's humanity and what it, what does it mean that Jesus was human? And what is this, is that good news for my humanity? And where, um, something that stopped me dead in my tracks was I was for something totally different, researching something about Israel. And I came across this church called the Church of Jesus, the Adolescent. And I, I just, I laughed so hard thinking, oh my goodness. At first I thought it was kind of ridiculous. And then I realized, oh no, this is actually like the most brilliant title, not title, uh, the most brilliant place for a church to say, this is important. You know, it's not because the church of the resurrection had been taken already. It's because they wanted to mark out that the, even the adolescent Jesus um, is very important for our salvation and very important for our humanity. And so uh, I just had this slow, I would say 15 year mind warp and mind shift around Jesus and his hum human nature, spending a lot of time in the first 30 years of his life where I'd spent, I'd spent my first 30 years in the last three years of his life. And then I, I went to the next 15 years, just spending time in the first 30 years of his life. And I think for me, where the rubber hit the road as a mom um, is that so much of my Christian life, I think was trying to run away from my humanity, run away from my brokenness, my limitations, my need for sleep, I would be really frustrated that I actually had limitations like sleep. Um, but I began focusing on how Jesus's humanity actually sanctifies my humanity. It's not just something he had to endure, but it is, it's the ultimate blessing and saying, I, I'm doing this with you. You know, I've done it and I'm going to keep doing it with you. And, and it wasn't something that Jesus had to set to the side because it was you know, something he did really quickly and then got out of as fast as he could. No, it's Jesus's humanity, humanity that sanctifies my own. And so I realized that my path to transformation wasn't in trying to escape all my limitations. Uh, instead, I'm being offered this incredible path to my own transformation, which is a descent into my humanity, my frailty, my limits, uh, my body, because it's there that I can find Jesus. This is what Jesus has the most in common with me. So if I'm a human, I have everything I need for my spiritual journey. And it's not to escape my humanity, it's actually to live this Jesus life through my humanity. And um, that's why I love that all these uh, Orthodox icons of the transfiguration, because we all have this deep longing to be transfigured, but Jesus offers us the path through our being human, not by escaping it. And that's good news for me as a mom who spends a lot of my time chauffeuring kids around, um, wading through swim practice or, you know, cooking meals, cleaning. If this is the place where I'm to be transformed, then I'm in the right place. And I, I don't have to be on a YWAM base somewhere. I don't have to be full-time working for my church. So I think that's, um, that's, the, that's the first part of your question. And then just to, to think a little bit about Jesus, the adolescent, um, I do think it comes as a shock to us to remember that Jesus really, well, the majority of his life was hidden. 
um, it wasn't spectacular. And he spent his life as you and I do in everyday relationships, um, the drudgery and the joys and the hiddenness um, of the things that just happen in our day-to-day lives. When I was little, even into my teenage years, 20s even, I used to think about Jesus as a person who says and does incredible things. But I think when I when I focus on Jesus that way, it keeps Jesus as someone really distant from me, someone um, to whom I cannot relate. And, and so there's something wrong with me if I'm gonna become like him. Um, but we need to remember that a huge part of Jesus's work for us was just being alive and was being hidden in a backwater town, far from great rulers, cities and events. Um, and it's doing during these years that an important part of our salvation was being worked out for us in Jesus's human nature. Okay, so that's my like, <laughs> that's my really big blah as to um, why I began valuing the ordinary. It's like a proper diagnosis and already a a helpful, you know, truth or medication or whatever but i love on the on a theology of the ordinary how you have like on the first page it's like it i think it's like a baby i think it's like a baby jesus crawling around <laughs> with like with building blocks and either a cat or a rat or something <laughs> I, lo- I love that um now, when i found that picture i was so excited this this artist also has jesus knitting no, no mary knitting with jesus on his lap so like yes. doing her mom things here she's having a play date for John the Baptist and Jesus, and they're like playing with blocks and, you know, maybe they're building the temple or something. Um, but the, the mouse that's in it is the, there's an old medieval analogy for salvation that Jesus, um, I think that Jesus was the mouse trap that caught Satan. So that's why he oh. put the mouse there. Jesus is like the thing that lured Satan out and then he trapped him. So that, that was that. But I, I love this artist because he really incorporates Mary, just like sitting there tired on a couch, um, watching Jesus playing. I loved it because that's funny that you explained that. I was like, is that a rat? I was like, <laughs> I don't know what's happening here, but that's cool. Um, so an, an often sort of mocked, but sincere question that people have been asking since like the Smashing Pumpkins and Oasis is, what would Jesus do? WWJD. <laughs> so can can we dig in on that and ask what, like, what was Jesus doing for those 30 years? Yeah, I think that's such a good question. Uh, and that's something we need to be thinking about as well. And I, it took me a while to try and figure out, because no one was writing about what was Jesus doing for those 30 years? Why are they even important? Why couldn't have he just arrived as a 30-year-old man? Like, why was it important that he had to be born? Um, or another option could have been, wh- why couldn't he have just been killed by Herod um, and died for our sins as a baby? You know, so there's something about the importance of Jesus needing these 30 years to grow, um, to change, to go through puberty, all these different things, to learn a trade. Um, there's something really important that we haven't really explored much in our theology uh, as to what that has to do with our salvation. Mm -hmm. And so I think I started with Calvin and it was interesting, the early Calvin, Calvin flip-flopped on this. He said, um, oh, there's nothing. The reason why the creed goes from his birth to his death is because nothing important happens in between. But 30 years later in his final edition of the Institutes, he says, actually, (laughs) 
It was very important. And he said, in fact, he achieved salvation for us by the whole course of his obedience, mm -hmm. starting with his birth. Mm -hmm. So that piqued my curiosity. I thought, what, what was Calvin reading that made him completely change on this? Obviously, Calvin was a big student of the church father. So that made me go back in time. So I started reading the early fathers. And, um, and I found something really surprising that all the church fathers were unanimous in that Jesus was saving us and recreating us by his ordinary existence. Mm. That's why he had to come as a baby and, and live life. And nothing of his was wasted, not even his teenage years, which all of us would like to, you know, put behind us as fast yes. as possible. All like the angst of those years, Jesus suffered and lived for us so that he could know us, you know, in our very depths and recreate us. Um, I love that because the early fathers had a word for this called recapitulation. Paul uses it as well. So I'm sure they pulled it from Paul, but it means that he had to go through all the steps where we broke away from the father, all the steps where we have lived in rebellion in our childhood, our early teen years, our later teen years, our vocational years. He had to live through all these things and show us how to be rightly related to the father and renew our humanity in those places so we could step forward again into this kind of renewed human existence. Um, so as I, I, that was so new to me because I'd only thought Jesus had to have flesh in order to save us because he had to right. be a man in order to be killed for us. Right. And so suddenly I find these giants of the faith who are so much smarter uh, than me or anybody living in our century saying, oh, no, his flesh was there because something was happening to his flesh. It, it right. wasn't just his ticket to get onto the cross. And then I began even going back further into the New Testament. And I realized, oh, my word, this is all through the New Testament. How did I miss this? Because wow. the early fathers were reading Paul and John. And if you look at John, John starts out his narrative as a new creation story. When he says, uh, in the beginning, everybody sits up and knows, oh, John's about to retell us the creation story. And he talks about Jesus. And so John is giving us hints. There's a new creation happening here. This baby born is the start, the brand new start, you know, of creation again. Praise God. I know. It, it's really amazing. Um, and I just, I love how Jesus, though, unlike in the very first beginning, he isn't starting from scratch. He isn't starting with a blank slate. God doesn't nuke the world and decide to start over. Um, instead, he's, he starts, he takes a body as the starting point of the new creation project. Mm. He's not fixing human nature in general. He works on his own humanity and starts us over in him. That's why we have to get in him. You know, as yes. Paul keeps saying, get inside him. Cause that's, if you're in him, that's where you are going to be your new created person. Oh so, so Jesus is recreating you and me and every human in himself. Um, I, I just love that. And John is the only person to report of all the four gospel writers, he's the only person to report that Jesus understood this. Mm. And he reports that when Jesus was baptized and John the Baptist says, no, 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 no. You know, I, I shouldn't baptize you. You should baptize me. Jesus says, I'm sanctifying them in myself. He doesn't say I'm sanctifying them. He says, I have to sanctify myself so that they can get sanctified. Oh, wow. So Jesus had this understanding, even as he's going through life, that whatever is happening to him is going to flow to us. And that's why we have to abide. That's why we have to get in on him. So that's John. Um, 
if that seems too weird, Paul's doing the exact same thing. Paul is also saying, Paul calls Jesus the new Adam, basically saying, ding, 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 it's a recreation story. Wake up, we're, we're, we're starting over here. Um, and this Adam, though, doesn't start things over at the cross. It starts at the cradle. That's where the mission begins. Hmm. And he's reclaiming, he's recreating all of human life from that moment. And so he wants to give us our humanity back. Like we have destroyed our humanity and he's saying, okay, I'm going to recreate it from, from within and I'm going to give it back to you. Mm. So I, I don't know if you have any questions. I can keep going with that. Well, I do. I just want to highlight something that you glossed over that I want the listeners to get. And you wrote this, I, for, I forgot where you wrote it. I've just been reading so much, but you said, quote, Jesus in my heart, end quote, is used only one time in the Bible. Christ in me, quote, is mentioned five times in the Bible, but in Christ, quote, is used by Paul 165 times. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So we want to like privatize Jesus and put him in my heart. Now there's, there's something really beautiful and simple about that language. Mm. But Paul's message is not, you get a little bit of Jesus in you. His message is, you got to get into Jesus and you got, that's where your salvation is happening mm. in mm. him. And that's where the new creation is happening. That's where, that's where the whole world is going to be um, remade, redone, reborn. Um, you know, in Colossians, I think, where he talks about everything is going to come together and be reunified in yes. Christ. So get in on that person. So yes. that's our, that's our mission. Like when I talk to people about discipleship, it is not a list of things to do. It's learning how to abide in Christ. And that's, that's gotta be, that's gotta be what we wake up every day and just say, help me. How, how do I abide? So every day I wake up and I think, I, I would think, okay, wh what do I need? Like, what are my marching orders? That's what I often think. Like, what do I need to do? Like what, you know, well, okay. Yeah, I wrote the I wrote this question down, but so what do we do now? Yeah. So I hear this good news, and my initial reaction is, and this is using your words to somehow quote activate it. Mm -hmm. And I love how you read just that language is like I love that. Yeah, it's not we're not activating it. So so we can't really activate it by prayer or fervor. But if that's not the case, what is the proper response? What's the call to action? What mm -hmm. like what, what train should I get on? Like, what, what is the prayer that I should be praying or what's the overflow that should be overflowing? Yeah. That, I mean, that is the question. And that's where I get so much help from Christians way before me, mm. because Christians before me, we're the ones who have this like activate language. We're the ones who are like, yeah. give me the marching orders. We're the ones who are like, give me the five steps, yeah. but they didn't do that. They had this is why I want to write a book on the church calendar because they're like, can we just structure our whole year in a way where everyone is walking through the Jesus story again and again and again. And we're reminding ourselves, Oh yeah, this is when I need to get, this is when I need to remember how tempted I am. And I need to get in touch. Like during Lent, I need to get in touch with my sin then. But the whole point of the church calendar is you don't stay there. You get out. You remember that you've been, you've been saved. You've been forgiven. You're living the resurrection life. Now, now let's walk forward in the resurrection. So that's a separate book. That's a separate talk with you. <laughs> that's a simple, like you talk about thousands of medieval illiterate peasants. They got it. They understood it. 
they were walking the Jesus story and they were not scrutinizing themselves every morning. Like, <gasps> what am I supposed to do? Um, I think about something really simple that at first was the weirdest thing to me. I heard that for many Orthodox people, they pray the Jesus prayer, which is Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner again, like a thousand times a day. And I was like, well, that's useless. Like you could actually be like using words to God, like that's just roped. But I'm finding that we are so worried that we're not doing it right, that we yeah. can never really surrender and just be like, okay, if, if it's all done, if, it, if everything is waiting for me in Christ, like, Lord, like, help me just live in this reality. Wake me up. And then if you're an Orthodox person, you just wake up by that prayer. I'm a sinner. I need you. I'm a sinner. I need you. And they do it a thousand times a day. So some of the things I used to dismiss, I now understand the psychology behind. And I'm like, oh my word, that's genius. <laughs> and um, So I'm really slow. I'm slow on the uptake. And most of these things are like part of our giant history with such rich tools in our toolbox. But we got rid of that all at the Reformation. We, we were like, that stuff is bad because some of it, anything can be misused and abused. Yeah. So yeah. we got rid of it all. But now what are we left with? our own energy we're left with our own will and sometimes like you're a mom with four kids you're a dad with four kids one what are your kids one three five and seven yeah. sometimes you're like i need some help can someone just help me i just just give me something really routine to do every day to put me in christ so i just bathe yourself in scripture like it could be really simple i in the mornings read a psalm i read a poem by sometimes Christian author, sometimes a not Christian author that wakes me up to like the world. And I'm like, oh yeah, I live in this beautiful world that's alive with God's presence. Okay, what do I need to do? What's what's right in front of me? I have four kids and no breakfast right now. Okay, that's <laughs> what I'm going to do. I'm going to go make breakfast. I and, love and I love my kids and I love my husband. And this is part of loving Jesus. And so, wow. um, yeah. And then I go to church. Also, like going to church, maybe my, especially when you're married to the pastor, it may not be your most exciting thing. Um, but like going to church is weirdly where Jesus is like, that's where I'm going to be. And yeah. see that bread and wine. I've promised I'm going to be there and see those people on the pew that you think are totally like old and you don't have anything in common with them. I'm in each one of those people. I'm surprising you. At, you know, Jesus is surprising us all the time because he's so doesn't choose the sexy things where we wish Jesus was going to be. Yeah. Yeah. You, so. had, you had you had said somewhere something like you used to think, oh, if I'm holding my kid, like I need to redeem the time in, in heavy intercession, you know, for the children of Zambia and my children or whatever. <laughs> yes. But so what is spiritual about, if that's even the right, the word, am I glorifying God when I'm holding my, my son and I'm just, I'm just holding him and I'm, and I'm thinking about, um, Oh, it's really, the rain's really hitting the window hard right now. Is yeah. that neutral activity or is that God honoring? I, you know what it is, it can be so God honoring. And I think because we're such dualists that we think <laughs> the only God honoring stuff is when I'm reading my Bible or interceding <laughs> and then anything else is just like wasted time. Right. And, and that's where Jesus's humanity saves us because Jesus wasn't wasting 30 years just trying to get to the cross for those 30 years he was showing us 
this is what it looks like to live in relationship with my father. Mm -hmm. I had like, he had to learn to walk. He had to learn, you know, he had to learn to read. He had to learn to help his brothers learn how to ride the bike or what, you know, whatever he was involved in in family life. None of that was like wasted that he was just biding his time trying to get through. He was being a human creature in relation with a loving father. That's what, that's what God did. When God decided to make the universe, he wasn't like, okay, I hope these people hurry up and grow up so that they can start being useful for me. God's right. like, when I made you, that was, that's my delight. And if you stay as, cre- as creatures um, in relation with me, you are fulfilling what I have made you to be. Oh my God. And I think we're the only creatures that struggle with uh, who we are created. We're the only creatures who don't know who we are and, mm-hmm. and who don't just say, thank you. Like I'm a human. Thank you. You mean I get to live in this body and be in relation with you? Thank you. You mean I get to be in relation with kids I get to create and a spouse and friends? Like, thank you. We think that's subpar. Um, and that I think breaks God's heart. Totally. This is such amazing grace. So you said this, you said this, this was really good. You said, Adam, quote, did not have, so in the garden, he did not have spiritual duties in the garden and secular duties in the garden if some of his duties were to be separate uh to be separate out as spiritual the consequences of this would be to create an entire realm in which he wouldn't feel that he was really doing quote god's work end quote so i had a follow-up question that because i i believe that but i've got this super nuanced thing i'm gonna throw at you and i don't know if you've thought it or whatever but um so we know from like Ephesians 4.30 that we as Christians can, quote, grieve the spirit, end quote. We know also that we as Christians can, quote, please God, like Ephesians 5.10, for example, says, quote, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. This is written to Christians or Hebrews 13.16 says, quote, to share what we have for, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God, end quote. So I know like in a forensic sense. Um, like core mundo, if you will, I'm fully pleasing to God in Christ yet in a fatherly sense. And I was just reading last night, you would call that a, uh, adoption or familiar sense. So, um, um, yet in a, this fatherly sense, if you will, where, as we see him from those passages above that we can, fur- we can, in fact, Christians further please or grieve him. So if that's the case, and since I always want to please God, I, that kind of puts me back on the wheel of works, but not to save me, but to stoke them out. So yeah, yeah. am I, am I off? Like, I don't know. I, I've asked a few people that, and, and I don't know. I, not... No, see, do you see how quickly we move from, I, I think our heart is to constantly be questioning our relationship with God. And so even though we know like, okay, I'm saved now, phew, that's, I can put that to the side. But now I'm worried that I'm not pleasing him all the time. <laughs> and that, that can become our new place of anxiety yeah. where, I mean, obviously if I'm like full on sinning, I'm leaving my husband because I am not enjoying the drudgery of marriage at the moment. Like that's, let's put that to the side. Mm. Um, let's just put Julie, every day I wake up and I think, if I hadn't saying to the Lord, thank you, 
I'm living, a, I, I am living fully as a creature before my father. Mm. I'm living as a daughter before my father. If I am living in, and I don't want to say in such a way as is pleasing to him, because suddenly that's like, I have my big list of things. What does it mean to be pleasing him in such a way? I think being Julie gives him great pleasure and great delight. Okay. And when I'm secure in that, then I actually, I think I'm more free to be, um, to be living a life that is pleasing to him because I'm not anxious. Because imagine if my kids were anxious all the time, like, oh my word, I'm so thankful that mom and dad had me. And I just really hope that today I'm being so thankful. And I just really hope that today they really know that, um, what can I be doing to please them more today? Like, I'd be like, chill out. Like, <laughs> like, I love you. And I want you to like, enjoy your life. And, and, and yes, my kids serve at the soup kitchen. I think that's great. And yet, you know, like I, I'm, that's my, my prayer is that their hearts are broken by the things that Jesus's heart is broken by. My prayer is that my heart stays broken by the things that Jesus's heart is broken by and that I live sacrificially. But the minute I start having, I, I just find that my mind, it's taken me 20 years to get away from a mindset of worry that I am not pleasing the Lord. Mm. And I just think that is, um, if that's just Satan, the accuser, constantly trying to undermine God's declaration, I'm your father. I love you. Now, I, I do put myself in community so I can have friends say, hey, we are, we're not sure. I do have friends. I do have deep friendships where they can speak into my life, but I'm, I'm not living in such a way that I'm always worried that I'm not pleasing to the Lord. I'm actually trying to live freely before him and... Oh, just a second. That's a windstorm that just pulled open my door. I get Hold it. On. Okay, thanks. I, I think I just, we have to learn to differentiate from the accuser's voice and the father's voice. And the accuser's voice will always be trying to slightly unsettle us yeah. in terms of our relationship with the father. Yeah. And usually he does that the most with type A Christians who really want to please, you know, who really want to please the Lord. And so I think the greatest thing we can do is have a, almost a morning routine of saying, thank you. Um, thank you. Not only that you saved me, but thank you for the life you've given me, the friendships you've given me, the calling you've given me, the family you've given me. Thank you. And, um, and I'm going to go through my ordinary day, Lord. And if there's anything you want me to know, I trust that you'll let me know, uh, but I'm not going to be anxious. You know, I'm not going to wow. worry that I'm off somehow because that anxiety is crushing. And to be honest, you can get to the place where it's easier to leave your faith because your faith makes you so anxious and your faith makes you so, and that's Satan. I mean, Satan's like, okay, how do I take these really devout people? Hmm. I'm going to make them worried. And I'm going to make the place of being with Jesus, a place of worry and fear. That was me when I was breastfeeding my daughter yeah. and worried that I wasn't pleasing the Lord. And that's when one of my mentors sat me down and said, Julie, like you're participating in creation right now. You need to wake up like you're being part of something so miraculous and holy. And um, this isn't sub spiritual. This is like the heart of the gospel. This is why this is why God made creatures and you're and you're like doubting it you're thinking wow. you're not doing the right thing wow. i don't know i don't know if that helps no, you what, you, what you're trying to say that you're trying to say there are things we can do to grieve the lord you're mm -hmm. saying what do i do about that like what do i do about those verses um 
what you can do is you can say to your friends, I am tempted to live in this place of worry that I'm grieving the Lord. I'm tempted to live in this. And it might be more grieving to the Lord that I am worried about grieving him. <laughs> than, you know, but if you see anything in my life, I'm going to let you be my, um, I'm going to let you be my conscience because oh. my conscience is over is working too hard. Come um, on. So I don't know that that's a little bit of Luther for you. So no, thank you. So I'm not lying. So we're, we're getting to the end. I had like, I had 124 quotes. I wanted to <laughs> have questions associated with, but um, there, so I think I'll ask you, but, and I, I have wrote time for I, a couple more, go, go okay. for a couple more, what you want, whatever. Okay. You want. Okay. Here, here's one. It seems like almost everything you write or speak, you return to the Lord's supper as like the secret sauce of a thriving lived Christianity. And I loved when you said, quote, he leaves us. Oh, I really love this. This is so good. He leaves us. <laughs> he leaves us just with the command to abide in a meal. So, just so ordinary. Um, so I'm come from like a, you know, a Baptist background. And every time you bring it up, I just, and, and even your husband, you guys talk about the Lord's Supper as it's just something that really does something for you. And I'm always like, what am I doing right now? <laughs> Help me out and people like me out. Like, yeah. Okay. I'll tell you my journey. I can give you my little journey. So I grew up in a Presbyterian church where we were told that it was really serious. And when we finally got around to having the Lord's Supper once a month, it was like, we kind of, maybe it was like once a quarter. I think it was once a quarter. Mm -hmm. We dressed up. It was a little bit scary. We were given this long time to examine our conscience. So it became this place of like, actually where Satan could attack me and tell me all my, bring all these sins to my mind, make me worried. I wasn't worthy. Like once again, we're back on that pecking order place where mm -hmm. Satan's like, I'm not sure you really have been good. I'm not sure you really are acceptable. Yeah, you might be saved, but I, so communion yeah. just became this like um, blank check for Satan to bring up all these like misgivings of a type A who knows they could always do better, who could always do more. So communion, and it also was super formal and it was, it wasn't presented as, hey, you guys, we need Jesus so much. We need him all the time. And he's given us really practical things that we can do so that we don't have to always be worried that we're not getting enough. We're not doing enough. He says, relax every week. I'm going to feed you. Just, just run with this. This is my gift to you. That's to me, the grace of communion, but that's not how it was presented to me. Right. Then I went when I was 22 to my very first, well, I was living in Canada, going to grad school and I was invited to a church called joy fellowship for private primarily down syndrome. It was a congregation of down syndrome people. And they took communion every week. Their sermon was like two minutes long. They had this, it was the biggest festival and celebration of a church service I have ever been to. I was like, oh my word, I have never had seen so much joy at church and communion. It, it wasn't like, do they believe the right thing? I'm not sure they actually have figured it out. So I'm not sure they're, I'm not sure we can really serve it to them because they don't have their theology, right? They understood it. This was like, this was the high point for them of the whole service. This is when God was so close to them and they got it and they took it. And I, it made me suddenly realize, okay, I've always had this like 
very tight theology of communion, exactly what it means. And it means this. And if you don't believe it means this, then you shouldn't be taking it. And that began my slow undoing of associating communion with right, perfect right belief. Then I started going to church in Europe where they did communion every week. And it just became part of like the weekly nourishment. And, and that's when I had little kids. And so I never heard the sermons because I was always like running after a baby and holding another one and leaving. There was, if the whole service was just about the sermon, then I was dressing my kids up for church for nothing because I got nothing out of those services. <laughs> but second half of the service, I got to go forward. I got to walk to the front. The mm. priest looked me in the eye, said my name, gave me Jesus. And I felt fed. I was mm. like, okay. Like, and then there was, there's also been times in my life where I have had been in a tougher place with the Lord and going to church just felt like I got nothing out of it. Maybe spiritual depression, dryness, whatever. But communion always was a, was like bypassing my mind and giving me Jesus on a different level. So mm. I was, I think I'd had a very like um, low fat diet of Jesus and that's the sermons yeah. and, and adding the meal was like, okay, now we're going to give you dessert or now we're going to get, you know, it's just like another way of, of receiving mm. him. So it took me many years and it took me not being able to always absorb the sermon, whether because of my own place I was at spiritually or being a mom, mm -hmm. that communion became very important to me and, it, and just a totally different way of connecting. So I'm sorry, that's my long autobiographical way of saying, finally, we ended up in Scotland where they only took communion twice a year. And that's our church there. We tried to convince the elders there, can we have it a little more often? And they were like, <laughs> They're like, no, it's too sacred. You know, we wouldn't want to have it more often because then it would ruin it for us and it would, it would become less sacred. Mm. And I, I just started thinking, no, I actually don't think that's how Jesus gave it to the church. I don't think he gave it to the church in that way that we should be really worried about taking it. And then we shouldn't, you know, I, that, that just felt wrong to me. And um, so when we came back to America, we found a church that was taking communion weekly. And I think it's just a way to, for me to always make sure that it's not just my mind that's absorbing Jesus, but my mm. mind and my body. He's offering himself to me in the word and the sacrament. And the sacrament meets me in a different way than the word. And if you've just grown up with the word, the sacraments don't make very much sense. Mm -hmm. But if you start doing it, they will make more sense. Like yes. it just like, it slowly, like you, you start changing in this really imperceptible way. And after a while you're like, I've totally changed on this. And oh, it just happened really gradually and really slowly. And I, I, it, I didn't get there through my mind. I got there through my body. So I'm very, I'm super, super encouraged by that. And I have 20 other questions, but we'll some other time. <laughs> okay. I, I will ask this. I will offer you one more question if that's all right. And it's, um, and it's, it's something that you addressed in one of your books and you just took it by the throat. You weren't having it, but <laughs> here, here, here it is. Like, what are the sort of tangible experiential fruits of union and abiding so so if everything you're saying sounds good and compelling and restful but if being honest for for many people not satisfying completely and here's why is like this side of eternity what benefit is there to be in christ that is if there's no face-to-face -face sensorial relationship no father and son laughing together or mowing the lawn together how deep can that friendship or abiding truly be 
if not like is that not just like a glorified spiritual pin pal <laughs> not a heavy that's a dark night of the soul right. question <laughs> let me see if i can rephrase it so i make sure i'm gonna answer the way you want me to go so are you saying um what like what is being offered to us okay we're saved now what's being offered to us before we get to heaven what right. what's the quality of our lives here yes okay yeah well I can give you, I'll give you some, uh, man, I'll just say that spend time. If you have any time to spend with the mystics, those are the people who first started helping me see. And actually it was the mystics who were the first people to probably inspire me. That comes back to our earlier question about theology of the ordinary. Mm. I think of brother Lawrence who wrote the practice of the presence of God and he was the um, dishwasher for his monastery. And he wrote one of the most lasting treatises on God's presence. He actually didn't write it. It was the other brothers after he died who said, oh, we need to write down all those things he said to us while he was washing dishes. <laughs> um, but he practiced the presence of God through all things. And there is something, there can be mystical experiences. Paul says, hey, once this happened to me, you know, he says, this happened to me once, yeah. but that's not the norm. Um, I, I want to say that there is joy and there, I have had moments where the Lord has particularly said, I'm here, I'm here with you, Julie. Mm. And those, um, those feed me, but I also am a part of a body of Christ where other people, when I'm not feeling it, they're feeling it. And so if I'm trying to be all the parts of the body to myself, I will constantly feel like I'm falling short. Um, but if I'm part of a church community where some people are feeling it. Some people are loving the word. Maybe I'm having a harder time with the word at that time. Some people are having satisfying prayer lives. I can barely read a Psalm and, you know, stay present to it. Um, there, there's always someone in the local body who is experiencing something that I might feel like I'm missing. Mm -hmm. But if I take Paul at his word, their experience is like a down payment for me. And their experience can make me not feel like I'm lacking. Mm. Now, I think knowing for me, knowing Jesus um, has freed me from the, the, you know how we've talked about the, the checklist that Christians often have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, knowing Jesus has freed me from the checklist of the world. It's given me, he has given me such freedom now I'm tempted to bring that checklist into my Christian life and make it become a burden and make it become something that brings me anxiety. Yeah. But if I can keep resisting that, if I can keep just abiding in his presence and often that isn't felt like, I, but I know it, I know I am, I know he's with me That's and I, I know from scripture he's with me. And, um, and it's not like carpooling my kids is somehow this ecstatic journey on the way to school <laughs> because I'm, I'm in Christ. It's just, it's part of a much bigger picture of seeing Christ in all things. And when I, whatever I'm doing, I can be with him and it can have profound meaning because it is his world and I'm a part of it and he's in me and I'm in him. So I, I don't know if that helps, but mystics, Catholic mystics, Orthodox mystics, Protestant mystics, people have attested. I just get worried about when mystics become like these people who are doing some, and having these really rapturous experiences of the Lord. I actually trust people less who talk about those things a lot because I'm like, Jesus was ordinary. 
you know, Jesus did normal stuff. Jesus didn't tell his disciples, you got to feel this feeling. You got to have this prophetic utterance. Mm-hmm. No, like he actually modeled this profoundly ordinary lived life with the father. And that is what he offers to me. Amen. So we've been talking with, with Dr. Julie Canlis. I kept her over like 15, 20 minutes. She wrote Calvin's Ladder, A Spiritual Theology of Ascent and Ascension, Erdman's um, 2010, and then the 68-page micro book called A Theology of the Ordinary, which if you go to livegodspeed.org, so livegodspeed.org, you could get the Theology of the Ordinary book. And then also um, there's a book or a guide, guided pilgrimage book called Backyard Pilgrim, 40 Days at Godspeed, which is sort of um, the, a, a fruit of their time, what they learned in Scotland. And there's a, a documentary like 30 minutes long that I just mass text message to like 45 friends and it's super good. And then just one more time, I, I do want to plug that 10 part Regent college course called worship as a way of life. Um, we'll link that it's at regentaudio.com. Dr. Canlis, this was amazing. Thank you. Jason, it was a privilege and long may the conversation continue. We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good, that's how we'll walk away. We came to break the bad, we came to cheer the sad, we came to leave.